The Talkin' Golf Network is proudly supported by the Golf Society. The Golf Society is founded on the belief that the latest golf trends, fashion and concepts shouldn't be compromised, but shared with every golfer. Shop online at www.thegolfsociety.com.au forward slash golf. I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 31 of the Talking Golf History Podcast. Today, I thought I'd share an interview that kicked off the Talking Golf History Podcast. It was my interview with Rod Morey and Adrian Logue on their show, the I Seek Golf Podcast. If you haven't heard this interview before, I think you'll really enjoy it. Some items we've discussed on our show and other topics, I look forward to doing a deeper dive in the future. Now, we dive into the archives. Episode 76 of the I Seek Golf Podcast. I guess, hello world, huh? (laughs) If Ben Hogan saw that, he'd puke. Is it his time? Yes! Uh, It's amazing that it's my destiny to be the first Aussie to win. Just incredible. Hello and welcome to episode 76 of the I Seek Golf Podcast. Rod Murray directing traffic as we peel back the curtain and shine a light on another dark corner of the game. Today, we're going to be poking around golf history. But for every one of you whose eyes just started to glaze over, and I know that you're out there, Do yourself a favour and stick with us because this is golf history as you've not heard it before. Shortly we'll be joined by Connor Lewis, the man behind the Society of Golf Historians Twitter feed, which popped up recently and has already made its way to the top of my list of favourites. This isn't golf history the way they teach it at school, more like the way you might learn it while smoking behind the bus shelter. Or was that just me? I'm not sure. Anyway, Connor is funny, insightful, intelligent and has a take on how we got here with the game that will keep you wanting more. Connor shortly, but first, the weekly homework. I was very excited to answer a knock at the door this week and have delivered into my hands a copy of The Lynx by Robert Hunter. This is, of course, the subject of the next ISG Pod Book Club, the suggestion of Mike Clayton and many others when we were looking for a book on course architecture. So if you've been following the book club or you just have an interest in the way golf courses are laid out or even if you're just a Mike Clayton fan, grab a copy of the links and join myself and Mike and indeed today's co-host Adrian Logue when we break down that tome in a couple of weeks' time, which brings me neatly to contact details. If you have an idea for the book club or a compliment or a complaint, feel free to get in touch and let us know. Twitter's the best way. You'll find me at at Talking Golf Radio, just the one G in Talking Golf, and Adrian at at Adrian Logue, L-O-G-U-E. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the show in whatever is your preferred podcast aggregating tool. And feel free to leave us a review as well. Apparently, it's particularly helpful for attracting 
new listeners. So if you think what we do is worth sharing, that is one way you can help out. Now, I've already mentioned his name, but let me now introduce him formally, my co-host for today's show, who I'm sure is as excited as I am about the little announcement that we're about to make. More on that in a moment. But first, Adrian Logue, not long back from Europe. Welcome. Good to have you back on board. G'day, Rob. Uh, yeah, it's really good to be back. Uh, looking forward to a bit of a chat about golf history today. My, my, my knowledge of golf history is pretty spotty, but uh, it's, um, I, I know some things pretty well, but then I've, I've got big, big, uh, big blank spots. So I'm hoping to fill in a few of the gaps today. Connor will fill in the gaps. Trust me. Now, he's waiting patiently for us in Florida, but just before I bring him into the conversation, we've got a little announcement that we wanted to make here, Adrian. It could be very exciting if there's mm-hmm. enough interest. Of course, the Australian Open is our most important golf tournament every year. It feels like a great opportunity to get some like-minded people together for a bit of golf, a bit of a chat, and even perhaps a live podcast recording. So, Adrian, let the listeners in on what it is that we're thinking about doing during Australian Open Week, if we can get enough people who are interested. Well, Rod, we're very excited to announce we've got the first iSeek Golf live event. We're, um, we're holding a 18 holes of golf at Bonnie Doon on Monday, November the 19th. Uh, it's We've got 18 holes followed by light refreshments and an interactive question and answer podcast featuring Mike Clayton. And uh, it is a paid event. It's $150 per head. Um, and we're asking for people to send us their interest in attending to podcast at iseekgolf.com. Uh, that's podcast at iseekgolf.com. We'll put that in the show notes as well. Um, but uh, it's going to be a great day, I think. Um, Australian Open Week, the Monday of the Australian Open Week, uh, 18 holes at Bonnie Doon, an architecturally interesting course in Sydney. And uh, with and, and an opportunity to meet with uh, Mike Clayton and talk to Mike Clayton in the podcast to follow. Which, let's be honest, that alone is worth 150 bucks to get to sit and have a listen to Mike Clayton talk about a course that he's helped to design. But yes, look, if we can get enough interest, it really is good fun. We did a couple of these back when the President's Cup was last here in 20... God, was it really 2011? Uh, my goodness, there was one at Bonnie Doon, there was another one down in Melbourne. They are fantastic fun. They weren't recorded, but what a fantastic idea this could be for a podcast. And 18 holes at Bonnie Doon is uh, is well worth the effort during Australian Open weekend to get to listen to Mike Clayton. So, look, fingers crossed if we can get enough people. I'm not sure how many we need. We've run the numbers, and I've now forgotten how many we needed, but <laughs> hopefully we get enough interest uh, to go ahead because I think it could be really, really good fun. It could be educational and entertaining, and you get to play at Bonnie Doon, and you get to meet... Mike Clayton, and you'll be there too, Adrian. So there's a draw for people. Talk about pulling back the curtain and taking a peek behind. <laughs> Finally get to meet the great Adrian Logue. So, yes, podcast at iseekgolf.com if you're interested. Just register your interest there, and we'll tally up some numbers, and we'll keep you in touch uh, on the podcast and via emails, those who get in touch with us as to how that's going along. Uh, that's not till November. Let's come back to today so that we can go back to yesteryear. Today's guest, Connor Lewis. Connor's been studying the history of the game for over a decade. It's his mission in life to have others as enamoured with golf as he is. As I mentioned at the outset, he's the man behind the uh, only recently launched Twitter handle, I think about a month ago, the Society of Golf Historians, which has been an absolutely fantastic addition to social media. Connor, you and I have already chatted this morning as we work through the technicalities of Scott. I know the listeners don't know yet. What a treat we're in for today chatting to you. Thanks for taking some time. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Oh. It's really my pleasure. Trust me. 
Well, enough of the mutual admiration society. Let's just say we're all happy to come together and talk about uh, the history of the game. Now, I said at the outset there, Connor, and I know this is something that you've come across and that we, 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 we sort of need to get past. Mention the word history, not just in golf, but in anything. Lots of people's eyes start to glaze over. They think it's boring and all the rest of it. Your mission is kind of to make the history of the game more interesting, isn't it? And your Twitter feed has been a real revelation in that. I wrote a column about it for a magazine last week suggesting people go and follow you. The nuggets and the tidbits, it is fascinating how the game got here, isn't it? Oh, it so is. I, you know, I, <clears throat> I liken my Twitter feed to um, golf history for those with no attention span, right? <laughs> so, you know, mm-hmm. it's kind so, of the perfect medium. Adrian, front and center. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, you don't want to hear uh, some, uh, you know, grumpy old historian with the, you know, the round glasses patter on for four hours and... Uh, I try not to be that guy who uh, gets up there and grandstands about the history of the game. What I try to do as much as anything is I try to find unique stories that I would say the average golfer, you know, even if it's the guy out there shooting, you know, 30 over par or the scratch golfer, or even the professional golfer can, you know, read it and go, wow, I didn't know that. I kind of makes sense. And maybe that's why we do something differently today. Indeed. Now let's start mm-hmm. with some of the interesting tidbits. You told me that you give, quite often give speeches around the place about the history of the game. Yeah. What do you what do you title those talks and tell us give us a thumbnail sketch of what people are likely to hear when you uh yeah give a talk. I'll, I'll give you a really good story. So uh I, I was I was asked to do a, a uh I don't know a speech on the history of the game. This is a couple of years ago. And this is where I really got into it. So before I would give speech it would be very specific. I've I've done a USGA uh symposium on what I called Hagen's last hurrah which was his trip to uh, the United Kingdom in 1929 when he won his last Open Championship. And those are definitely geared towards, you know, the historian. You know, they're, they're much more uh, collegial than they are for the, you know, just the average guy who's just trying to get a, a hit fix on history. So I was asked to do this, this speech for um, a charity event. I think they were going to have 500 golfers in the audience. And... I was asked to do it. They were like, all right, we'd love to have you. That's great. You have some items you're going to bring. Fantastic. And hey, let's do that. So with no other notice, I just bring some historical tidbits and some of my antiquities from my collection to try to make it interesting. And right before I go on stage, uh, the lovely lady who was throwing the event pulled me aside. This is during dinner, dinner mind you. And she goes, Connor, um, would you mind telling me how long you're going to talk for? And I said, oh, well, you know what? I'll tell you what, I, I can talk for as long as you want. You need me for three hours or, I mean, whatever. You name the number, I'll talk. And she goes, I swear to you. She goes, yeah, um, I was thinking maybe 10 minutes. And I, like, I go, I'm not going to name her name. But I'm just, I'm going to make up a name, mind you. I'm like, Elizabeth, I can't even introduce myself in 10 minutes. We're just, <laughs> I got to go. I my throat. Yeah, that's right. I the go, I'm going to get on the stage. I said, I'm going to get on the stage. And if any time you think I'm losing the audience, you just give me the, you know, the, the hand signal and I'll find two minutes to, to sum it up. And I said, I tell you what, we're not going to get there. So this speech that I kind of came up with, um, and I really did it on the fly, oddly enough, because, um, you know, when I go into these speeches, oddly enough, I kind of just flow into whatever subject matter I think is going to fit the crowd. So I named this, uh, this speech, let me try to think, it was called golf who can you blame the <laughs> bastards the liars and cheaters who made this game happen right you, you have me a hello yeah that's right yeah, <laughs> anyway, 
so um so i get up there the very first thing i do so we have you know 500 golfers uh all playing in a scramble of course and i i ask them by by a raise of hands how many of you lift out a putt today right so they all raise their hands and i said do you want to know who you can blame for that lift out putt right and and the whole speech is geared like that so for the i'll answer the question by the way so oh, good. <laughs> um for almost every rule for every quirk in our game uh you can trace it back to some specific point in the case of the the hole being four and a quarter inches wide or in diameter the person you can actually blame is a guy named robert gay uh who in the late 1820s was playing musselboro links right musselboro scotland one of the oldest golf courses in the world he was a blacksmith by trade and I think he just became frustrated. If, if you think about it, um, let's say we're playing in a tournament, Rod and Adrian, and, and uh, Rod, you tee off in the morning, right? Mm-hmm. And Adrian is teeing off in the afternoon. Who do you think has the better chance of, of scoring better in, say, 1840, Rod or Adrian, just based on, let's say, your average, your handicaps are identical? I'm going to say the afternoon player because the cup gets all because that still happens in my club every week (laughs) yeah right so what would happen though prior to having this this whole designated size is that you know back in the 1840s the rule to the game of golf essentially said that you would tee your ball up within a couple of club lengths from the hole so you're actually teeing it up on the green right now this is all prior to the invention of golf tees so players would use sand to tee up their ball so what they do is they put their hand down to find wet sand. Where are you going to find it? You're going to find it underground. So you'd stick your hand into the golf hole, scoop up some sand, two paces away from the hole, you tee it up and hit your ball. So as you imagine, as the day gets older, the hole gets oblong you know, and larger, right? So the hole becomes a little easier to putt to. So Robert Gay just got a little frustrated with it, used some ingenuity. And oddly enough, why four and a quarter inches, right? That's the next question. Well, as luck would have it, or perhaps damn us, uh, the average drain pipe in Musselboro was four and a quarter inches wide. <laughs> so he was not going to reinvent something, you know, don't reinvent the wheel if you have mm-hmm. something to work. He used a drain pipe that was four and a quarter inches, which was standard, and it became the standard at Musselboro. Now, oddly enough, not to go down this rabbit hole too deep, uh, it wasn't even common or wasn't even regulated until 1891 when the RNA made it official that four and a quarter inches mm-hmm. would be the diameter of the golf hole. Because so, the, so, yeah, it, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say, so two things about that. Adrian would also have the advantage in the afternoon because as he has described my hands previously, they're like a bunch of bananas. So when I reach into the yeah. hole to grab up a bit of sand, I increase the size of the hole by roughly double. <laughs> so anybody yeah, who that's follows... taking a pinch yeah. between yeah. like forefinger and thumb <laughs> as that's well. That's right. So there's that. But I, there was something popped up on Twitter about this just the other day. Uh, I think Lee Patterson, who we discussed earlier uh, when we were setting up the Skype, Connor posted a, a, a piece... Some, a letter exchange, I think, in The Guardian where Max Baer talked about the whole – no, John Lowe talked yeah. about the size of the cups at Canoosti being larger than the size of the cups at St Andrews historically, partly to do yeah, with the difficulty of the inches. links. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Amazing think, to think. I mean, up until 1891, it was kind of, you know, anything goes. You know, it's Amazing, literally the it? Wild West, if you will. Yeah, and just that teeing up within two club lengths. And, of course, you know, yeah. anybody who chooses not to use a little pile of sand from the hole – 
gouges a great big scar out of oh. the earth, which you may have to butt over within two club lengths of the Absolutely, hole, so. right? Yeah. So maybe it doesn't get better in the afternoon, right? Maybe it's all chunked <laughs> up and it's uh, the law of averages. It, it just kind of averages itself out. As golf does, it evens itself out beautifully. The, the game's full of these fascinating tidbits, isn't it? And, and stuff that we don't think about. And in, and in fact, you raised yeah. one when we spoke earlier that I don't think you've solved as yet, but is a fascinating. Where did the idea of rakes in bunkers come from? These things we take for granted have these yeah. fascinating stories. We've got the plumbing of Muscle Brother, thank for the size of the golf hole. You know that, or blame, or blame, depending on whether you're a good putter, right? Yeah, or blame. So it's actually it's actually some. Uh, like bureaucrat in a government office who decided That's how right. wide those pipes are going to be. Should be. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Might be the same great as either the railway gauge. You know, it's uh, it's pretty amazing. When you start to think about it, golf, of course, grows in concert with culture and society, doesn't it? And and it probably reflects in, in modern times as well, the way we go about the game and talk about the game and think about the game. These sorts of links would be common right through the history of the game, would they not, Connor? I suppose that's the interest of it, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, you're still de- dealing with human nature, right? Um, you know, someone's always complaining that the ball is going too short or too long. Someone's always complaining that the golf, uh, golf hole is too small, right? I mean, you, you can find these discussions going back to 1850s in literature and, and newspaper articles of, you know, and the word sandbagger obviously didn't exist, but, you know, there were disputes within clubs because someone's handicap was overinflated. And, you know, you bring in old Tom Morris to settle the dispute. Wow. It's it's kind of it's funny when you read some of these <laughs> old articles how we keep reliving history. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. Uh, I want to ask you about a few specifics. But the first thing I wanted to ask you is do you have can you pinpoint one figure in golf history that you have found to be the most entertaining or the most influential or the most do you know what I mean is there a most for you is there a figure in golf history that when someone mentions that name do you think wow what an extraordinary contribution to the game this person made, be it education well, I mean, or interesting. The easy or one. Yeah, the easiest one to give you is old Tom Morris. <clears throat> I mean, that's, you know, the the godfather of golf. Mm-hmm. He His contributions to the game. Now, I'll give you a flip side to old Tom, and largely overlooked. I, I You know, you've heard this before, Rod, with me, but I always say, you know, you're, you're about ready to hop down the bunny hole with me sometimes, the rabbit hole. And what I always like to say is, if not, if this, then what, right? So, for instance, there's zero doubt as one historical figure, if you're going to pinpoint one person that literally changed the face of the game more than any other, right? It's old Tom Morris. And I, I don't even know if that's a debatable fact. I mean, that is uh, everything from, uh, you know, he was first, you know, basically first golf professional, first superintendent. Mm-hmm. Uh, the things that he did back in his day we still do today, like mm-hmm. top dress, dressing greens, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, here he is out in the old course with a, a literally a, a wheelbarrow of sand. He accidentally spills it on the green, right? Sweeps it off into the bunker, and he realizes the next day that the green putts better than it did before, the day before. Wow. And from that day forward, he said, you know, a, a, you know, a, 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 a green needs more sand. You know, more sand, more sand will make a great green. And, you know, since that day, heck, I mean, two, three times a year, my club puts sand on yep. the greens. And everybody complains. No mistake, <laughs> an old time forest. Yeah, that's right. Everyone, everyone complains. Healthy greens. And it's funny. There's a lot of things like that where it's mm. a complete accident. We were roll into it. Now, let me give you the figure that nobody mentions, right? And uh, that was his mentor, Alan Robertson. He was the first man to break 80. Yeah. He was the... 
greatest golfer of his time. I think there's an argument. Some will push back a little bit with me, but if you don't have Alan Robertson, I think there's an argument to be made that you don't have major championships today. He was the king of clubs. He was the champion golfer of the world. And he passed away in 1859, leaving a glaring hole in the game, right? The, The question was, there was never a question who was the greatest golfer that lived up until he died. He was that good. Uh, said to have never lost a match. That's not necessarily true. Let's say he never lost a match in his prime. And when he did, he lost it to old Tom Morris, who he basically taught how to play. So he's basically playing against, you know, himself in style. But um, Alan Robertson obviously gave us Carnasty, uh, Carnoustie. Uh, mm-hmm. But he taught old Tom the game. And because of that, bringing him on as a protege, we have, you know, the world we have now. I mean, we have the open championship in my opinion, because of that gaping hole of when he passed. So I'd say my, my, one of my favorite golfers of all time is not talked about enough. And that's, uh, poor Alan Robertson, Mm. the peacock of his day, by the way, he was, uh, known for wearing really, really bright peacock colors on the golf course. I thought you might have gone with like a Jeff Maggot or someone like that, but yeah, that, so those are those are perfectly good choices. Those, those are. Uh, I, I was going to go with Forrest Fesler, who was the first player ever to wear uh, shorts, shorts <laughs> in a major, right? Isn't it? Yeah. I mean, game changer, right yeah, there. Right. Yeah, the USGA had the rule where it was a loophole where you could get away with it in the US Open, but yeah, uh, yeah there was basically no rule. That's essentially what yeah. he saw the loophole. It was like a billion degrees out. They're playing Oakmont. And uh, playing down, the, I think, the 72nd hole, he jumps into the loo, you know, takes off his pants and runs out with uh, what can only be called as just barely not being Daisy Duke short shorts. <laughs> but you know what? I'll give you this. I think I've, seen against those photos. I've seen those photos. He had the legs to pull them off. If I do that, <laughs> everyone's screaming, who's got the chicken legs? Who's got the chicken legs? Oh. So. Don't Good for him. Don't start on the chicken legs. Adrian, can you turn your microphone down just a smidgen? Either you've moved closer to it or I didn't catch it earlier. It's just a little bit louder than uh, than I would like. My apologies for oh, that. No, no, not you, Connor. Exactly. Adrian, yeah. Adrian, I don't want Adrian. No, 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 no. It's Adrian. I don't want him talking over the top of you. Adrian, I think you had a question for Connor. Uh, well, a point of order. Um, the, uh, your Twitter account's called the Society of Golf Historians. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. is, uh, who, who do we have in this society? Is there... <laughs> Is, is yeah. it? Uh, You've fallen for the yeah, trap, Adrian. You've fallen for the trap. <laughs> blow him away, Connor. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I said, blow him away. Fix him up. Tell him why yeah, it's the society. No. I don't know about blowing anybody away, but uh, I have essentially two Twitter feeds. One's really geared towards architecture, and that's Charles Blair McKenzie. Um, McDonald? That's the other one. And it really McKenzie. started from there. So. Yeah, I've connected with a couple historians on Twitter, and I think I was going back and forth. This is only a couple months ago, and I thought, you know what? Why why isn't there a society that is geared towards people who care about the history of the game? Um, I, I guess one of my fears is when I look back is there's a lot of people out there with a ton of knowledge about the history of the game, and there's really no way for us now or previously – to connect and share that knowledge. And so I kind of put it out there as, yeah, it was kind of a, you know, harebrained idea. Like there should be, you know, a society of golf historians. I made up the name, like really on the bat and started to get some, you know, really good feedback from, you know, some of the folks uh, on Twitter, uh, Bill Williams, Bill the Brit. Um, I think we had Stymie, 
Lee Patterson, um, Gary Cole, and Peter Kessler. And we started talking about it, and four of us just happened to be in Florida. And so uh, in the last month or so, uh, I offered to, you know, let's all get together and have lunch, break bread, and figure out what this might look like. And that's, I mean, that's that's it in its infancy. It's all about it. I mean, it's almost as, actually, I'd say it's probably as old as my Twitter account, which is about a month old. <laughs> yeah. And, and to be honest with you, we're looking to do an annual meeting. Uh, we're going to do it during the uh, the PGA uh, show here in Orlando, and I think it'll uh, you know eventually become kind of a road show where we move it around. Maybe we follow the U.S. Open, go to the Open Championship every other year, something like that. But I think there's an opportunity to, you know, I'd say for the diehards, you know, get, get together. I think the first year we're just talking about a dinner. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe a couple speakers. And then what I'd love to see happen is, you know, not just for the hardcore historians, but anybody who has a interest in the history of the game, even if it's a little bit, is to have more of a meeting where we could have breakout sessions. And the, the whole idea is how can we learn from each other? Yeah. So much of this knowledge is stuck in people's head. There's a golf day on the Monday of Australian Open week at Bonnie Doom, which you'd be more than welcome to bring a bunch <laughs> of people to if you were so... Uh, there, so in- I'm, I'm almost there already. <laughs> on that, I suppose, Connor, the thing about golf history is that no one man could possibly be across all of it because like the game itself, it's so segmented, isn't it? You've got the rules, which are an area of special interest that you could spend your whole oh. life studying and never get the full picture. You've got equipment, which, of course, you could spend your whole life studying and never get the full picture. You've got the it's players... That's right. The players that you could go down that rabbit hole and spend your entire life, the championships and the the golf courses. So the notion of a society that brings people who've got an area of expertise in all of that, I can really see the appeal because if I've spent my life studying golf courses, there's this whole other fascinating world of golf clubs, isn't there, to hear about? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I'll give you an example. So this is just, I mean, this is maybe a week old, maybe two weeks old, and I'm going to screw up who sent it out. It might have been Stymie on, on Twitter or it might have been Lee Patterson. But, you know, here I am, I, I you know, I, I'm fairly well versed in a lot of areas, but, you know, perhaps not an expert in any. But um, I, it was either Lee or, or Stymie who put out an article uh, that was written by Walter Travis that said that Pine Valley was built as a reversible course, the first reversible course in the United States. And I read that article and I was really like, you know, mind blown. Like, I'm looking at it, I'm like, how is it possible I didn't know this? Like, I was almost, like, upset with myself. Like, <laughs> how did I miss that? I mean, because I mean, all I do for fun, right, I play golf, obviously, but I read every golf history book, every golf article I can get. And it's the one thing in my world, for whatever reason, where I read it and it sticks in my brain. Right, it's like a beautiful mind for useless information. About <laughs> as opposed, That's me. as like, opposed to remembering to pick up the kids, you. like your wife told you, or go and do the shopping, yeah, like your yeah, wife told you. Or, yeah, right. but right, but if you go, yeah, when did you know Gene Sarazen first use the sandwich? I'll go, oh, the 1932, you know, Open Championship at Sandwich, no big deal. He used a Walter Hagen's caddy. And Walter Hagen stole the idea of the clubs and made six <laughs> duplicate copies by William Gibson the next day. I mean, boom, just like that, right? Mm-hmm. I, and I can't even tell you what the source was. I just it's stuck in that head of mine. So when I read that article, I was just like, this is literally I've never been the biggest fan of, um, you know, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, because it, sometimes it just gets so damn mean spirited. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I, I really try to. I don't chastise people, but I mean, the last thing I want to see when I'm looking at Twitter, which is kind of a golf relief for me, 
it is, you know, politics. It's just like, oh, you know, I'm on here to escape the real world, you know. But uh, no, it's just it's it's been eye opening to me. And I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm new to Twitter. I think I joined Twitter this year as well. Oh, welcome. Uh, Facebook yeah. leaves me cold. Instagram, too many pictures for my liking. Twitter, uh, I do I do like the sort of nature. It's an interesting discussion on media and the way the game is not covered is the wrong word these days, isn't it, Adrian? The way that social media has allowed golfers, whoever you happen to be, whether you're the modern equipment nut, whether you're the person who campaigns for the ball to go further, whether you're the person who campaigns for the golf ball to be restricted, there's a place... Everyone's found or someone a place. who cares about paths. Someone who cares about paths, exactly. I mean, you can go right down to the <laughs> minutiae, can't you? But that that opportunity, I think this has been particularly true. Golf course architecture is my probably special interest, I guess you'd call it. What a world it's opened up social media, Adrian. It's quite extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, you can find your tribe. I think that's the mm. the secret to it, and you can you can shut out the voices you don't want. Of course, that creates a bit of an echo chamber, um, but uh, yeah. Uh, Connor mentioned some good follows there, Lee Patterson and Stymie um, and uh, Peter Kessler. They're, they're all good follows. Oh, the, the whole society, the story, individually, they're, they're very good follows. Yeah, just, just, just put together a, a Twitter list, actually, for that. Might, uh, it, I'll get on that. I was going to say, if Connor's only just joined, I don't even understand the Twitter list. So that's certainly – that'll be your role with the Society of Golf Historians, Adrian. You can manage the social, uh, social media accounts. Just before we go further, Connor – is the society open to? I mean, if people are interested, can they get in touch with you on Twitter and express it? If we've got people Absolutely. in Australia who've got a, because there's lots of golf historians in Australia too. Lots of people interested in this. Yeah, I, I think like it's it's open to all. Fantastic. I think, again, it's an open forum for education and, and teaching is kind of how I see it. Yeah. So, I think the more the merrier. You never know. I mean, everybody's got a different take. I think you've said that extremely well. From golf course architecture to golf history. I mean, you look at myself. I, I'm. I'm really well versed from 1930 to as back as you can go. Uh, we at lunch, I was sitting with uh, Peter Kessler, and he started talking. I think it was the 1986 Masters, and he just goes off and starts <laughs> describing like every iron shot Jack hit. I mean, like everyone and where he hit it to. And mm-hmm. I'm like, I, I don't have that in my brain. Yeah. Like that's my brain works a different way, and so to hear somebody get really excited about a different facet of history and be able to recall it like that, it's really impressive to yeah. me. You've given me an opportunity to, sh- to, to share one of my very few pop culture references. You know, I, I'm not big on TV and stuff, but talking about not having that in your brain, does anybody else remember the great episode of The Simpsons when Homer's talking about learning new things and he says that if he's going to learn something, if something new is going to go into his brain, something old has to go out? And he says to Marge, <laughs> yeah. you remember when I took that wine tasting course and forgot how to drive? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! <gosh. laughs> <laughs> Which might be one of my, far from the truth, unfortunately. <laughs> that's one of my all-time uh, favorite Simpsons lines ever. Uh, Peter Pedia, as I like to call him, Peter Kessler, he's extraordinary with that sort of stuff, isn't he? And as you say, his Brilliant. recall is just uh, just remarkable. And th- that show he used to do on Golf Channel, that uh, uh, Golf Talk Live, was amazing stuff because yeah. he had all that recall yeah. just at hand, which made him a fascinating interviewer. Do you have a particular? branch of special interest or do you like the game like you I, I saw your office earlier when we were talking you've got lots of old golf yeah. clubs in there and that. is there a particular area that lights your fire in golf history uh i mean if i had a, a true love it would be pre-1900 mm-hmm. because i think the artistry of the game was so different i mean you look at harry varden and we discussed it i, I think a little bit before 
about uh, we were I, I made a, a Twitter um, I, t- I put out a couple tweets looking at Bobby Jones's clubs and Harry Vardens and how they weren't dissimilar with Bryson DeChambeau's right. Um, actually, Harry Varden's set was extremely rare. I thought his um, the you know I'm not going to use I'll use nomenclature that people understand rather than use like mashy clique, but like his three iron was longer right. And then his wedges were longer and his mid irons were shorter in the middle. So they had this mm-hmm. weird staggering where you went from like 37 inches to like it started to go up, you know, like in the middle and then it went back down. It's just the weirdest thing I've ever seen where mm-hmm. the, 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 the sand wedge, if you will, was almost as long as the three iron. But then like the seven iron of the set was like the shortest one and everything kind of went in like like a weird, you know, golf club triangle like an inverted was, sort of a thing this, this, right because yeah. I mean, everything's feel right yeah. it was feel yeah. it was a different type of game so i love that there's a a grittiness the, to it wasn't bobby jones uh he he always was or he liked his eight iron better than the other clubs or he didn't like it i can't remember oh, which one it was it. yeah yeah he hated fact, it right okay because yeah, it was just I, I actually, slightly different they found later yeah it's a, his mashy niblick would be the actual club today and funny enough i'm actually holding one of Bobby Jones's personal mashing niblicks in my hand right now. Uh, it's one of the, I had, I've had two that he owned and used over his career, but uh, I do have one of his mashing niblicks and it's, it's an amazingly good shape probably because he hated hitting it. Right. It's kind of the thought process behind it, but he hated it. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. And this is how golf history works and why it's so interesting, isn't it? That immediately begs the question then, well, first things first, I want you to run me through the mashing niblick clique because I've heard them all, but I never understand which one's which. So that'd be good if you could help. Yeah. Brassy and Spoon, I think I get, I've got some handle on the Yeah. Yeah, You know, let's see if I can hit them all because they, they change over time too. So if you're talking pre 1900, right. Yeah. So they changed from the pre 1900s to past 1900. So I'll tell you that, and then maybe I'll walk you in through the numbers, right? I think I, I did a little piece on that. So way back when, um, actually in the feathery ball era, uh, which was a golf ball that was made of leather stuffed with goose feathers, uh, every club in your bag was essentially wooden, right? Mm-hmm. And so you'd be hitting a wooden niblick. So it was a long nose wood with 50 degrees of loft, right? Because you're hitting this leather ball that could tear and you know, damn goose feathers fly all over the place and make a big mess of the place. But it, as we switched in in 1848, the gutty came about and the clubs became uh, steel, right? Mm-hmm. So you would have your driver, uh, which would be your play club. You'd have your brassy, which was interestingly invented. A lot of people argue this, but Musselboro because it was an out-of-bounds club. So back then we didn't have out-of-bounds. You're playing down Mrs. Foreman's hole. You hit a big, big, huge slice, and it ends up on the road, the cobblestone road. They invented a club with a brass sole plate so you could hit it off the road. That's the brassy. <laughs> yeah, that's why it came to exist. Real weird, right? Uh, is, that, uh, is that like a two-wood like or a three-wood? Is that the – It would be – yeah, it would be like a two-wood. Two and then your three-wood, four-wood would be a spoon, right? Mm-hmm. And again, these are all long nose in the pre-1900 area. Um, but those three clubs, the driver, brassy, and spoon – transitioned into the you know post 1900 rounds mm-hmm. or, or era so then you'd have the clique right which is like your 20 degree you'd have a 30 degree general iron you'd have a 40 degree lofter you'd have a 50 degree niblick right and then you'd have a putter that would be like your entire set six clubs something like that yeah six clubs mm-hmm. seven clubs i think varden had seven something um, so that was pretty you know what and 
you think that sounds like, why, why don't they do that today? Well, the ball also didn't travel as far, right? So your 10 yard increments really could be caught within those six clubs, right? So when you play, I, I play gutty golf because I'm crazy. Um, when I play with gutties, six, seven clubs, you're really good to go, right? Um, as that transition that changed into the cliques stayed the same, we added, uh, you know, the mashy, the mashy iron. Uh, we added the spade mashy, the mashy niblick. So these are like uh, seven iron, eight iron. You know, your niblick stayed the same, and then you went to the putter. And then, of course, everything changed. The world changes uh, towards the end of 1920s uh, when Spalding introduces the irons. So if you ever ask yourself, you know, why, why does my set start with a three or four iron and go all the way to a nine iron and then go into the pitching wedge? Well, the nine iron back then was 50 degrees, right? So it was kind of your, your niblick. And the only reason they were, they're numbered is because when they originally sold sets, they sold them in 10 clubs. So it'd be one through 10, 10 would be your putter, right? Mm -hmm. One would actually be the loft of a three iron. So when people say, you know, nobody can hit a one iron, you know, even, you know, Hogan's one iron, his one iron had the loft, generally speaking of a three iron Mm -hmm. because that hadn't transitioned into, you know, kind of, uh, loft on steroids that we have today, right? Where a four iron is almost a three iron. So, so yeah, and, that's essentially, that's the transition. Because I was going to say, because when you think about Varden's set and Jones's set and, and, and famous stories of golfers of that era, spending their whole lives collecting clubs that worked yeah. for them oh. to create a set that they would then never let go. Of course, it Did, begs the question, where does the first matched set come from, which you answered with that spalling. Yeah. Yep. Somebody the said, spalling, yeah. hang on a minute, let's say we sell these things as a set rather than you go and find one at a time. Oh. It's, uh, it's did, amazing. Did they go through a period where the like, uh, didn't Jones carry like 30 clubs at mm-hmm. one point as no, well? The most he's ever been known. So this is a good story. So um, I'll transition this into why we play 14 clubs, right? So Jones wins the Grand Slam with, I'd call it 14 and a half clubs. Uh, I say 14 and a half because I'm, it, he, his very first turn of the year, he plays the Savannah Open. And Horton Smith, this is prior to him winning the uh, Masters Tournament in 34, obviously. So this is 1930. Um, he wins. And Jones is thinking, you know, obviously he's thinking going over to the UK this year. And Horton Smith gives Bobby Jones a Walter Hagen concave wedge. Right. So but Jones has 14 clubs. Fort Smith gives him this concave wedge, which is literally its concave face. Jones uses it in the United Kingdom and wins both uh, the Open Championship and the British Amateur, which he has only won one time, and that was in 1930. The club helped him on two occasions win the tournament. And then I think at Royal Liverpool or something, was it? He got on up and yeah, down. Yeah, so it was yeah. St. Andrews and oh, Liverpool. Okay. I believe that's right. So what was the benefit um, of the concave wedge, just before we go into that? Why, why did concave? Why well, was that important? You know, <laughs> that's a good one. So... Two things. Uh, it was a scoop face. So there was a, a weird logic. I don't know if there was a lot of scientific thoughts into this thing that it would scoop it out. Um, it had a flange. However, if you look at any one of these, they're all dig soles. So they quite didn't quite understand how bounce worked. So these are for bunkers. The idea of it's having a, it's a bunker club. There. Is it bunker club? That's what it's called. It is purely a bunker club. Right, okay. And I would make an argument it's not a great one. And the reasoning is, if you think about it, you have a severe concave face. If you hit the bottom of the club, it goes high. If you hit the middle, it goes medium. If you hit the top, it's a line drive. Mm. So the precision for that club is, you know, insane, right? 
So Jones uses uh, essentially 14 and a half clubs. In the United States, he uses 14. Uh, fast forward now, uh, four years, four or five years, and you have this guy named Lawson Little, right? Now, Lawson Little was the next coming of the Bobby Jones. He ended up winning what is called the Little Slam, which is he won the 1934 U.S. Amateur and British Amateur and then repeated that same thing in 1935, right? Okay. So poor Lawson Little picked on a lot here. Uh, the USGA was not a big fan of how many clubs he'd carry in his bag. And he would carry right-handed clubs and left-handed clubs because if you got behind a tree, you know, there's no rule that we need 14. So he'd have 22 to 30 clubs in his bag at any given time. Caddy's worst nightmare. I was going right? to say, which the caddy carries, he doesn't. Oh, my gosh, right? <laughs> right yeah. My job's hard enough. I'm wearing, you know, wool trousers out yeah. here, and I've got to carry this guy's, you know, 50-pound bag. <laughs> So the USGA decides, and this is where I love the story because there's a, one of my favorite Bobby Jones quotes of all time. So the USGA gets involved in 39. They're like, all right, enough's enough. You know, this, you know, 14 club or, you know, these unlimited clubs, we need to change this. I don't know this. I've heard this is rumor. I need to verify it. I've heard some people deny it. I've heard that the 14 club rule was based on how many clubs Jones had in his bag when he won the U.S. Open and U.S. Amateur, mm -hmm. which was 14. That would make sense, it would. right? It's a sensible um, guideline, isn't it? You know? It's a sensible one. So uh, now my favorite quote of all time. This was actually prior to this 1930. So Jones wins with, uh, finishes off the U.S. Amateur at Marion in, in 1930. And a reporter comes up to him and says, you know, Bobby, you know, great on the wind. You know, just fantastic. Can I just ask you a quick question? And, you know, Bob goes, yeah, go ahead. And, you know, he goes, well, um, just a quick question for you. Uh, you won, um, you know, the U.S. Open and U.S. Amateur using um, 14 clubs in your bag. In 1916, Chick Evans used seven clubs to win the U.S. Open and U.S. Amateur. Do you have any thoughts on that? Now, Bob Jones was a brilliant man. And this, this quote literally is one of my favorites of all time. And I still use it today. As he, I like, on a dime, spins and says, well, I suppose it's better to be a master of seven than vaguely familiar with 14. <laughs> I mean, how good is that quote? Like, yeah. flipping on a dime. Yeah. Just, I mean, that, that shows you the keen mind of Bobby Jones. Yep. Fantastic stuff, isn't it? What a time that must have been um, with all of that change going mm -hmm. on, you know, with Steele and Hagen around then as yeah, well. Yeah, Hagen and all those sorts of things. While what a you, character he was. Yeah. While you were talking there at Dornham, you may not have an answer to this question. I might send you down a rabbit hole of your own. When does no. the golf bag make its entry into the game? A you bag know, to put clubs the, in. So, yeah, the bag, it's, it's, it's around the late 1800s. Okay. I don't have – there's a couple of weird bags that came up. I think it was 1880 where um, – it was kind of a wicker style bag where it had a bottom and it kind of had a strap and then there was no middle to it. Right. It was kind of a, you know, carrier, if like, you will. Like an right? open sort of stand. The clubs yeah, it was sit just in wide there. open. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in when the bag went from being hanging down to hanging up as well. You, you see all that old footage of the, the caddies, the, the club heads are all pointing downwards. Hey, yeah. Um, but yeah. I'm yeah. not familiar with this. Explain so, this to me. Well, well I'm sure Connor, Connor will talk us through it. So. Well, you look at it. So if you look at old pictures, I think a lot of that hanging down versus hanging up actually goes back to the the caddies of old. And I'm, I'm talking, you go back to the grand match at St. Andrews, if you look at that painting. Um, and and uh, Rod, I think I showed you a picture when we were looking at my office. Mm -hmm. The caddies back then would hold the clubs under their arm, 
right? This is pre-golf back here. And the only reason they hung down, right, was because the weight of the club was heavier. They just kind of put them underneath an arm or put them on a shoulder, and the heaviest part would kind of weigh down. And it kind of makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. And you have that open back look. I think that continued. Now, the problem was when we started building, you know, golf bags like we know them today, leather golf bags, flipping them upside down becomes pretty inconvenient because all of a sudden they're catching on the clubs in there. Now, the only one, and a funny little factoid story here, the last time I heard of a club, uh, of a player keeping a club upside down in his bag was Gene Saracen in the 1932 Open Championship, right? So in 31 or late in the year, he essentially invented what we call, or I'd say rediscovered, because it's hard to call it an invention when flanges uh, existed prior to Gene. Uh, but he invented the idea of using bounce. Let's go that route or popularized it. And for the 1932 open at sandwich, he actually kept his, his sand wedge upside down in the bag because he was so afraid that tournament officials would ban it. Uh. Right. And so, and this kind of goes back into that story with Hagen. So Hagen, I mean, a lot of people don't know this about Hagen because there's a misconception that he was a drunkard and a playboy. And he might, he was probably a playboy, let's face it. Uh, but <laughs> The drunkard part, actually, you know, him drinking and getting drunk before a tournament really became popularized way after his prime, right, of having a good time. He was a very serious competitor, but he liked to play that uh, that, psych- that psychology role on the fellow players that he was out all night, right? So a lot of people don't know this, but prior to, like, the Open Championship, he'd show up kind of late to his tea time. He'd be wearing a tuxedo like he came right from the bars. When in fact he was at another championship course ten miles down the road warming up, practicing, and he'd show up like he just came from the bar, yeah. you know, throwing a napkin on the ground and just play with your head like if I can't beat this guy today, I'm going to look like an idiot. Mm-hmm. And he had him right. So Hagen, nice guy, 32, he'd already won four Open Championships, and he told Gene Sarazen on the boat over, "You can't win an Open without a good caddy." So Hagen gave. Uh, Gene Sarazen, his trusty caddy, to be on his bag. And, of course, then Gene Sarazen uses the sand wedge, gets out of every bunker real easily, wins the Open Championship. And Hagen goes up to his old caddy and says, you know, I, I saw him hitting those great bunker shots. Did he have a secret? The caddy kind of pulls him aside and he, he told him what they you know, look like. You know, actually having to bounce that is a, uh, a bounce sole versus a dig sole. And, you know, literally a week later, uh, he goes to Scotland. Hagen goes to Scotland and goes to William Gibson to have six prototypes made. I hate to say this. At one time, I owned four of the six prototypes, and I don't have one to my name today. Jesus Christ. So, shame on me. <laughs> we need to talk. You're really not <laughs> managing this very well, are you? That's uh... No, I know. If, if I told you all the things I used to have in my collection, we'd all cry. Hey, I've seen a small sample of what you've got now. I can't imagine what you must have had passed through your hands over the years, Adrian. I tell you, that, that in fact, there's probably an entire episode in just you wandering the office <laughs> with your phone and just wandering recording with the, office, the pictures right. and, and telling, us, uh, telling us what you've got there and, 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 uh, and how you came by it. What, what, why did it start for you, Connor? What grabbed you? Why, why would somebody who's clearly otherwise quite intelligent and sensible, A, start to play golf, <laughs> which is an absurd thing to do with one's life, and then B, yeah. get hooked on the history of it? Well, I, I, there's two kind of pivotal moments, right? Maybe three. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm a late comer to the game, right? Uh, I'm a decent handicap. Not that I'm playing to it now. I think I told you now I, I play to a four, 
but I'm probably playing. I've lost my swing. So we, that's another podcast that we could get. If you could bring in a psychologist, we'll figure it out. But yeah, I'll I tell you what's happened. You started playing Hickory and Gutty. That's what happened to you. Yeah, no kidding, right? <laughs> so, so I started playing the game late. So I'm 44. I started playing around the age of 30. I think I was 29. And I blame my wife's family for this. Mm-hmm. They're all scratch players. And uh, first time we went out, uh, I was just the, the boyfriend. And I think, I'm not kidding, I think they beat me by like 70 strokes. I mean, it was embarrassing. And I, I went to my now wife and said, you know, I'm either going to get good at this game or I'm never going to play it again. And I, I literally spent the next year at the range, not even playing, just literally going to the range so I wouldn't embarrass myself. And got myself to kind of whittle down to like a nine, something like that, something respectable over a couple of years. And then the next pivotal moment came in... 2007. In 2007, here I am, full golf addict, playing modern equipment. And I go to, um, I was living in Iowa at the time, working for Mayo Clinic. And um, I'm driving through Des Moines, Iowa. In fact, this is in the middle of winter, so there's two feet of snow on the ground. And they had this golf dome, right, which was like a big indoor practice dome just for golf. And it was, I think it was the only one in Iowa at the time. And here I am, this golf addict. I got my clubs in my bag. I get done meeting with, you know, a couple of doctors. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go hit some golf balls. And I go into this place and there's a damn golf show in it. And I'm just so depressed because I'm like, ah, here's all these clearance. You know, it's like all the junk they couldn't sell in the summertime and fall. <laughs> and they're just hacking it off. So it's like, you know, peacock colored polo shirts and, you know, God knows what. And so I'm so wholly depressed that I can't hit balls, but I'm walking through this place and there's these two guys in it, Russ Fisher and uh, Bill Reed. And they're wearing knickers and they've got their, you know, the newsboy cap on and they have all these hickory shafted clubs. And I go over there and I mean, novice, I mean, I'm just golfer guy. I'm like everybody else out there that's probably listening to this. That's not crazy like me and uh, or not yet anyway, I should say. And I see these clubs. I'm like, wow, there's there's some real beauty to these old drivers. And they had three Walter Hagen. They had a, a, a Walter Hagen driver, hickory shaft, a brassy, and a spoon. And Russ said, well, you know what? Part of that range is open. Why don't you just go down there and hit that thing? And I said, oh, no, no. I, I, I said the words that every guy who's never hit a hickory shaft <laughs> says. Oh, no, no, no. I'll break it. Yeah. And he goes, <laughs> he goes those things have been around a lot longer than you, and they're going to be around a lot longer after you. He goes, if you break it, don't worry about it. It's not going to break. So I took him down the other range, and oh, my God. It was just, I, I mean, it was like five-yard draw. I mean, you couldn't tell how far they were going, but they were just, there was a, a feeling that just went right up my arms and into my heart. You know, it's like this soft, you know, feeling, this little click instead mm-hmm. of, the, you know, smash that we have in today's game. And I just said, Oh my God, I, I need this. So then I went back to him and I said, I need the best set I can get. What's the best set there is. And they're like, wow, the best set is the set, but you can't get it because they're so rare. And they're Tom Stewart. And Tom Stewart, by the way, was a, a club maker from St. Andrews in the uh, 1900s through about 1935. And he was the Titleist, the made, the Callaway all put together. Right. He made clubs for Bobby Jones, Francis We Met, Harry Varden, Gene Sarazen, Tommy Armour. He was like the who's who. Related to Alex Stewart? The pro at uh, yeah. 
no idea. No, no, I don't believe so. Okay. No, I don't believe so. So, um, so I said, yes, I need that. And they said, well, there's a set that he made illegally, and they were duplicates of Bobby Jones's actual Grand Slam clubs, and they're called RTJs when they were stamped Robert Tired Jones, right? RTJ. And uh, I said, oh, I need that. And he's like, well, there's only, you know, a handful of those sets known to exist. And I said, find them. I want it. And so they helped me scour the earth. And I found a set within, I mean, like maybe a couple months. I probably overpaid for it. And um, I decided just then and there that I was going to go to Scotland. Like the first time I was ever going to play it, I'm going to do it in Scotland. And so I go over to Scotland for my dad's 65th birthday. This is now 2008. And we played, I don't know, 10 of the best courses out there. I mean, 10 of the most famous courses out there. Uh, and I, it was my first time ever playing Hickory's. And I mean, at the old course, I think I shot a 78. And I said, oh, my God, if I can break 80 with these, why would I ever play modern equipment? Right. Uh, now, I've since gone back on that. But um, I mean, I, for about seven years... That's all I played was hickory shafted clubs. So and those were the three kind of moments that was like, it was not only, it was the experience of hitting those clubs, which opened up my curiosity into what was the game like back then. And so I had this weird odyssey of, you know, just purchasing and reading everything I could read. And I mean, I mean, just devouring knowledge as I could while I'm playing this equipment thinking, you know, all right, not only am I living it, but I'm kind of breathing it and reading it at the same time. And then, Rod, I think, as you said before, I went down a totally different rabbit hole that was borderline insanity. About two years toward the end of that, I thought, well, I understand what it was like to play in the age of Bobby Jones and Walter Hagen. What was it like to play in the age of Varden and Willie Park and, you know, Tom Morris? And, and so I went down another level, which was you know, putting together a set of pre-1900 clubs with gutties and started playing that for two years straight with no other clubs in between. Are we talking real pre-1900 clubs or replicas? No, (laughs) a little story with that. So, um, (laughs) yes, completely. (laughs) Here's a funny story. This is a good story it goes with. So I really got into it. I started started hosting a tournament called the All-American. And so I found a course that was actually I'll get the, the course was the original course for the Chicago Golf Club, which was the first 18 hole golf course in the United States. A lot of people don't know this, but uh, the original Chicago Golf Club does not reside in its current location in Wheaton. It was it's now a public course uh, that was, you know, 1892 was founded in a town called Downers Grove and is now a municipal golf course. It's only nine holes now. There's three holes that are original. And so I started to host the All-American Hickory Open at the original site of the Chicago Golf Club. And so I, I'm playing all original equipment minus the golf ball because, you know, you couldn't find a round golf ball. And if you did, we you certainly wouldn't hit it because it would be worth about 100000 bucks. Yeah, that's true. Well, <laughs> you know what? I'm not going to go there because I was playing, you know, like Willie Park long nose drivers and Robert Forgan long nose. I mean – these drivers cost thousands. I was going to say, they're not cheap and, to come by either. No. So one of these days out there, Adrian, I'm playing a practice round. It's like the day before our tournament. And 
I get out there and I foozle a shot, which, by the way, needs to come back. That terminology, a foozled shot, needs to come back. It's what, too good of a word. Talk us about what, what's a foozle. Foozle just means you hit a, a horrible shot, like right. low on the face toward the heel, right? Okay. Not a not a shank, but just a poor shot. Okay. So I foozle the drive. I call those a Mori. Hey, hey, hey. Only if, only if they're around the green. <laughs> love it. Yeah. I love, love it. So I, I foozle a shot, and the half of my golf club breaks the, the head of it and flies down the fairway. And I'm in, like, utter shock. Like, I've just broken a club that costs thousands of dollars, right? So fortunately for me, I've got another club. Or I've got another driver, a backup driver. So this is a Willie Park that I bring. And I go into the next hole, and I've got a Robert Forgan. And damn it, if I didn't do it again. I broke another club. So I've, I've now basically set on fire thousands of dollars of club. <laughs> and for about four minutes, I think the people on the course thought I had Tourette's. Because I just could not stop swearing. I mean, it was like nonstop, you know, like flipper flabber coming out. I mean, there were, I probably made up some swear words. I was so mad. Um, but since that day, Adrian, to your question... When I play gutty golf, I have a you know certified replica long nose driver for that. <laughs> but I do play yeah. all the original kind. Did you manage to fix not those two clubs? Well, Could they be fixed? Could they be repaired or not? The uh, yeah, but you know your value, you never. You know, get it's back. not the same. It's, now, of course, as you yeah. can imagine. Does your the swing speed is probably much higher than uh, Willie Park? Willie Park. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Does yeah. your wife People know about all this? They become wall hangers. Does your wife know? Does your wife know about any of this? What if she listens to this podcast? Oh, I'm gonna. Uh, I'll tell you another. Uh, let me tell you. I'll tell you. Yeah, I think I, I think I told you this one before. It's one of my favorite stories about my wife. So, um, I God love her. I don't know why she puts up with me. Um, but I was on a I was on a trip, a work trip, and two stories I think they involve her that really kind of explain this. So I'm on a work trip, and my wife calls me early in the morning, and I'm in a hotel, and she goes, "You won't believe this." I go, "What?" She goes. Somebody broke into the house. And I go, did they take anything from my office? And she goes, we're fine. We're fine. Like, all right. All right. Shh, shh. Obviously, you lead with the kids have been kidnapped. Right. We lead with that. We don't say somebody broke in the house. And so the other story, one day she, she came into my office and she was like, you know, I want to build this brick patio and this brick walkway up to the house. Uh, but that's going to be really expensive. And I kind of looked around the room and I was like, you know, I'll just sell that club right there. <laughs> and she goes, what? And I go, yeah, I'll just sell that. I don't, you know, I haven't looked at it for a while. I'll just, I'll, I'll sell it. So I sell it and we pay for it in cash. <laughs> Next day she walks into my office. I swear she does a total pivot in my office and she goes, you know what? This stuff might be worth something. <laughs> oh. Revealed yourself. Now. Yes. Your own. God uh, lover. Love right. Your own fault. Um, it really is. Why do people go nuts about this stuff, Adrian, do you reckon? I, I've played hickory golf, but I'll be honest, it never grabbed me. I love the equipment from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and muscleback blades and persimmon clubs. Those yeah. really speak to me. That's what you're up. Hickory speaks to, to other people. What is it, Adrian? What do you reckon it is? Why, why is a guy like um, poor old Connor gone completely mad? I, I'm probably not the right. I mean, look, I haven't tried hickory golf, to be honest. It might surprise some people. Um, but I'm a little bit like you, Rod. Like, I've got my old set of um, uh, Australian, Maxfly Australian blades, and I've got an old set what of Hogan you? irons as well. I didn't know. And I really enjoy playing with those um, from time to time. Um, but, it, yeah, it's something that hasn't really captured my imagination trying it. I'm a little bit – it's a little bit like uh, – 
trying to watch Breaking Bad or something. I know if I got into that series, I'd be hooked. But uh, <laughs> I haven't uh, I haven't started watching it or anything. But the um, Hickory, for me, I think is probably a little bit similar. If I give it a go, I'm sure I'd really like it. Uh, and I don't know why. I, 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 yeah, I, I don't know what the attraction is, but I'm sure I would like it. There's something, isn't there, you know, Connor, in the Rod, handmade you, you nature? Just jump in there, Rod. Yes. You know, the thing I think that appeals to people, I mean, when you play it, I think the first thing you realize is it's not that different than the game mm-hmm. you play now. It's, it's a little different, but it's not that different. Um, and I think it's very comparable to, you know, you're saying you're talking playing Hogan's and Persimmons. I think you'd find with the right set, and that's the, the difficulty is finding the right set, that your play is very similar. Your distances, oddly enough, are very similar. You lose a little bit, but not a lot. Mm-hmm. And, and as soon as you make that adjustment, right, in your head, like, okay, this is going to be five yards shorter than a seven, right? As soon as you get that in your head, you just play golf. Now, the difference here is pre-1900 golf. Pre-1900 golf is a completely different animal altogether. You're playing six, seven clubs. You know, your long drive will go 180 yards. You know, you can play hickories and hit 250, 260-yard drives still. So it definitely comes into play. Yeah. Yeah, distance is relative, isn't it? But uh, I imagine there is a threshold with golf technology where uh, things just got to the length that we're familiar with uh, through most of the last century. Of course, it's taken another big jump early this century, as we know. Yeah. Um, on, a, on a different matter, Connor, I, I'm very curious. I mean, I, I couldn't go past this interview without asking about the very origins of golf. I know this is a, a yeah. murky area, but... Um, you've got this game in the Netherlands called Kolf, where they, they chase a ball yep. around fields or around ice ice fields or something like that. Yeah. Is there uh, what's the what's your take on on the the early game, the the yeah. origins of the game? Yeah, I think there is some fuzziness, right? And I, I think there's there, there's a, a couple good stories that go with that. But one, my take is this. So uh, as part of that speech, you know, that I, I would give. I talk about uh, this misconception that uh, golf is an acronym, right? Like the gentlemen mm-hmm. only, ladies forbidden. Uh, I don't know if you've heard that before. It's quite popular. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I mentioned that, you know, we had Mary, Queen of Scots playing the 1500s. So I think that sets that argument back quite a bit. But um, I am one of those who believes that golf, golf is original to Scotland. I won't argue that. I will say, I will argue, and it is my belief that uh, it did originate from the Dutch game Colven. Yeah. I think you call it Kolf, which is uh, Kolf, by the way, means club. Mm-hmm. That's the translation. Um, my thought is now, this is my own personal take. I'm not going to back it with this is fact, but I believe that the game came through uh, Edinburgh, through the ports. So the Dutch brought it to their Colven game to uh, the, the port of Edinburgh, which quickly transitioned into playing which is largely believed to be the oldest golf course in the world, Leith Links, which is now a park in Edinburgh. Uh, it was a five-hole golf course. Each hole was over 400 yards, by the way. Wow. And, um, yeah, Colvin, I mean, that's my take on it. I think that's the easiest. There's, you know, there's a couple games from uh, the ancient Romans, mm-hmm. uh, but I think the easiest one to show a direct line of trade that would transition into a game would be Colvin. That's my take. 
you know, other historians will disagree with me, but did, I think that's did Colin have a hole? Was there a hole in Colvin, or a, was there a hole in Colvin, or was it a no? Colvin played usually to like a stick or a yeah. tree that was above ground. Yeah. Uh, so I, I've heard people. I don't know if I, I follow all of this, but I've heard that when it was brought to the ports of Edinburgh, that they were essentially playing to like bunny or rabbit holes. Funny mm-hmm. enough, because I use that term all the time yeah. going down a rabbit hole. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but yeah, Leith Links is established, and then it's a hub uh, for you know generations to come. Now. Uh, one of the funny stories, um, Rod, I put this up on the site, uh, was the the match to determine who did the game belong to, mm. the English or the Scottish. It's another great story. It's one of these, we've got all these like crazy weird stories over the years. And um, it was actually the Duke of York was bet by an en- English comrade that uh, the English the English owned the game of golf, not the Scots, right? And the Duke of York wanted to, you know, like, you know, hold up the good name of Scotland, uh, engaged a uh, cobbler, right, who was in the city of Edinburgh named John Patterson. And John Patterstone uh, was a crack golfer. He was like the Alan Robertson of his time. And the two of them faced off against these English guys and just beat the bejesus out of them, right? And ever since then, golf has been the Scottish game. <laughs> Which I find it really amusing because, <laughs> God forbid, what if what if, if the English win? Yeah, that, you know what do we do? We'll be trying to trace yeah. the Dutch to England somehow to see how they uh, right. how they like, manage to do so, it. So you know, I, I don't think there was a real argu- argument from the English, but no. I just think, you know, it's one of those weird stories of like, oh, you know, we're going to set this, we're, we'll settle this by playing That's right. each other. We'll, right? I'll bet you with all uh, of course. The Duke of York grabs the Tiger Woods of his day and helps him out. Well, the early exponents of golf, part of the reason we've got all these crazy stories is because they would have been the eccentric wealthy, wouldn't they, with the, with the people who oh. were playing golf. It wasn't a game for the masses. So you get these people whose entire life is essentially leisure. There's, yeah. let's be frank, mm. there's some inbreeding going on. There's some interesting yeah. characters playing golf. Of course, <laughs> under those parameters it all looks quite normal doesn't it that's how you would be well we'll, we'll play you to see who owns the game you know that's the exact sort of nonsense that would uh, that yeah. would happen back to the history of it somebody told me this a long time ago was there a period where there was a game somewhat like golf but where the target was the church door of the town and you had essentially roaming gangs of kids with clubs and perhaps a stone yes. or similar playing to the church door. And it was this that led authorities to say, this is crazy, people are getting hurt, you're stampeding over old ladies. Take that game and go and play it on the wasteland, the lynx land. Between. Yeah, the lynx land. Yeah. Yeah. Is there truth yeah. to that? What's I mean, the, what, what's the... kind of transition to it. And I'll tell you where that leads is this is, you know, obviously perhaps hundreds of years later, uh, the famous, you know, red jackets, mm-hmm. right, that captains would wear and, uh, gentlemen of leisure, if you would, would wear the red jackets out onto the links. Uh, and as the story goes, obviously, the, the red captain's jacket is obviously going back to the uh, the English red coats. Obviously, it was a military jacket. But uh, part of the reason why they wore these red jackets on the links was kind of a, a, a cautionary reason, right? Is If you see the red jacket, it means caution. There's a gentleman playing golf. And you run the risk of being hit by mm-hmm. the awkwardly hit golf yeah. ball. So it's kind of like the flashing light. Oh crap! Here comes you know Mister Rogers coming down here with the red coat. He's gonna you know hit a gutty my way and perhaps kill me if I don't watch myself. So you know that that kind of game transitioned oddly into a couple of uh, oh I don't I would say even into attire as the game got older. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I, I'm bracing myself for the answer to this, uh, Connor. But do you have one of those those red coats by any chance? I yeah, I do. Yeah. So uh, I have I have three jackets in my home. One I can't tell you about that Rod knows. Uh-huh. Um, I have another one that's red. It's a Royal Musabra jacket, and I also have a 1965 United Kingdom Ryder Cup jacket. It was owned by Christy O'Connor. Which is, wow. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's, well, and I, as I said, I did the, the phone camera tour of the office and it's just hanging on the door of the cupboard yeah. on the, on the doorknob in the there. office. It's, it's, it's almost ostentatious the way he goes about it, frankly, Adrian. You <laughs> want to tidy it up before. That's exactly <laughs> how I describe it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, tell me, Connor, of all the things that you know, we haven't got time obviously to go to with it, but I often feel as though with each passing, not year, but over decades and generations, golf constantly seems to lose little bits of its character and itself. And the game we have today is still fantastic. It's not to suggest in any way that it's not. It's but very that, homogenized. It, it, there's a sameness and a things like just like the notion of par and par 72 courses and even 18-hole courses and nine holes isn't legitimate. And it yeah. feels like we've lost a lot. Game, golf was a much more adventurous game a couple hundred years ago. Does that... Yeah, well, you. it was much more, it was, but it was also much more a societal game, right? I mean, like towns had like this fever over their local course, and you wanted to defend your your town's honor when they played, you know, another town in a match, and it was it was part of the community, which is, uh, you know, we've lost that for sure. We've given it away, really, right? haven't Fair. we? We've deliberately given that away with golf in many ways, and part of golf's image problem is this notion of exclusion. You know, the golf course is here and it has a fence around it and you're not to come in. Golf, the golf course is only for golfers and that's creating all sorts of problems with modern golf, isn't it? You know, we now have councils in Sydney to really bring it full circle who feel that golf course is a fair game. Well, we'll close the golf course because we've built units here and we need some green space and the golf course is taking up green space that people could otherwise use. So shut the golf course because it's only for the rich few who use it and we'll have it for a dog, which is a real tragedy, isn't it? We need to be careful not to lose golf. Yeah, it's here. interesting. Now, I'm gonna, I'll name a course, and I, I am uh, pathetic that I haven't played it yet because it's not far from me. It's about an hour away. Winter Park. Uh, an interesting case study on this is Winter Park 9. You heard mm-hmm. of that course? Heard of it. Yeah. I've written about it. Yeah. I've suggested yeah, that every council in Australia That's... should fly over and have a look at it. Yeah, so it, I think it's a, a beautiful case study mm-hmm. into how can golf reimmerse itself into a community, mm-hmm. right? And, and it is a great example of what golf could be, what golf should be, and how it could be open to the masses and grow the game mm-hmm. as a family game, as a community game, as a, a pastime. I, I'd love to see, uh, you know, I'm not a golf course, obviously, architect. I, I, uh, I play a lot of amazing golf courses, but I'd love to see courses. I would love to see an architect, to be honest with you, design a brilliant 12-hole golf course. Mm-hmm. Prestwick, as you know, yeah. Yeah. First thirteen years or first thirteen yeah, opens was a twelve hole course. It was a longer. It was longer than that. It was a twelve hole, but it was a twelve hole. Our first three open rota courses were a twelve hole course, an eighteen hole course, and a nine hole course. Mm-hmm. And so this idea that golf has to be eighteen holes is absurd to me. And imagine we're in busy. We our lives we believe are busier than they ever have been. I don't know if that's true. Um, I think we are easier to get a hold of, and that is the distraction. Our cell phones, uh, text messages, uh, Twitter feeds, we have this constant action. 
I think a step away to the community golf course means something. Mm. And maybe we don't do 18 holes. Maybe we find a way to route courses of the future on three-hole loops or six-hole loops or nine-hole loops, which we have. But we encourage people just to play the amount of golf that they want to play versus have this stigma of, well, you didn't play golf, you didn't play 18 holes. And unfortunately, that exists all over the place. In a in a depressingly pervasive way, isn't it, Adrian? So I think yeah. Tom Clayton said something on Twitter about something about a nine hole best nine hole courses in Royal Wellington, and people were commenting on what a fantastic because, and of course, somebody wades in and says, "Well, you know, it's not proper golf because it's only nine holes." How do we get past this, Adrian? Because it, you can grow up in a world where you don't know any of the stuff that Connor's talking about. And I think about it in my own imagination. There's a sense of wonder. I can sort of picture people wandering around these incredibly thrilling and exhilarating landscapes on the, the coast of Scotland, playing this crazy game with an, an almost uncontrollable ball and sticks that are completely all suited for the purpose and just having a sport of it. That's got nothing to do with what we do today, is it? And if you can't make those links, how do we educate people that those links are important and to to take those things from golf rather than this formalised, homogenised is a great word that you used earlier. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's something I'd really, uh, you know, I mentally rail against it, The this standardisation of everything in golf, this, you know, everything, yeah, the homogenisation where, uh, you know, and it, it extends to every part of the golf course, doesn't it? Like all of the people expect the greens to be the same speed mm. in every single green yeah. on the golf course. They expect the consistency of the sand in the bunkers to be the same. In fact, those are probably the two biggest things that you ask any club golfer um, about the condition of their course. They'll, they'll talk to you about the green speed and the consistency of the bunkers. In and the, the color of the grass. And the color of the grass. Yep, exactly. <laughs> right? yeah. yeah. But those are, those would be the things that uh, like everybody's striving for this, um, this, a nebulous sort of ideal which they've seen on TV, which is where all the damage gets done, I guess, as well, with um, standardisation on 18 holes and, and so forth. And it's a shame because the handicap system supports nine-hole golf um, and, uh, and and a lot of people handicapping is important. Um, like They feel like that's the measure of their their enjoyment of the game even is, is how they're doing week to week with their handicap. And I'm I'm actually no different with that. I, I like to I like to have my round of golf mean something. And uh, and there, there's games of golf where I just don't score and I'm just walking around and enjoying myself. But my my Saturday game at the local club, I you know I want to be handicapped. I, I want to sort of uh, measure my, myself up against you know how I played the week before or five weeks before and so forth. Is it about balance? Um, because all of those things take away the sportiness of the game. And sporty is a, a word that used to be used about golf all the time. A course would be sporty. You know, Pinehurst, the original Pinehurst was described as, you know, a particularly sporty course. But we seem to be taking away sporty and replacing with formalised. Because I'm the same. We're all the same, I guess, in Australia. If, if you're a golfer in Australia, it'd be unusual if you manage to avoid the notion of playing regular competitions to maintain a handicap. And so that becomes your golf experience, your prime golf experience but so many people never get beyond that there's so much beyond that isn't there adrian to enjoy even yeah. if only occasionally um yeah the sportiness is is a big thing and and that um your recent podcast on uh, state of the game i think really spoke to that with the list that ran morissette put together uh ran morissette no doubt a candidate for membership of the society I of golf historians so. yeah, i don't but uh, I love the um, – it got me thinking about courses that I played recently 
um, where it's just all about the golf and everything is unpretentious. There's, um, you know, one one cut of grass, just all the grass on the golf course is one height, minimal maintenance. Um, you know, the, the bunker edges may not be pristine. The, the ground is firm. The, the grasses and some sort of native things. There's no fairway watering. There, there's a course I played recently, which has every right to be the most pretentious um, <laughs> trumped up place you'd ever see. And yet it's the complete opposite. This course, um, Royal Copenhagen. Wow, fabulous. And uh, it, it is just an amazing place. Um, everybody really should, everybody should know about it. I don't know how more people don't know about it, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a Royal, it, it's a, it's a Danish Royal. So I don't think it's the one that's bestowed <laughs> it's upon the Royal, uh, it's a, it's a other Royals, yeah. but, um, it has a, like a hunting castle on the property. Um, but, uh, anybody's welcome. They have hundreds of thousands of people just walk through the place every year. Um, cyclists, uh, horse riding, um, oh, wow. joggers, every, people with their dog. Every second group we saw the day that we were there had had a dog with them. Um, people going around with their shirt untucked. Uh, most Danish golfers are impeccably dressed, mind you, but even and so they kind of look okay even with their shirt untucked. But um, uh, everybody carrying. There was no carts. All the paths were natural. Um, the the ground was firm. Just just an amazing place. No fairway watering, as I said. All the grass was cut one height. No maintenance at all in the rough. They just let that grow. No checkerboard There's cutting? There's no the checkerboard. that keep the grass down. No checkerboard fairways? No checkerboard <laughs> fairways, no. Um, and it's just a really pure golf experience. And it would be a great place for hickories um, to <laughs> come to think of it. But, uh, yeah, I, I just wish more people could experience that type of golf mm-hmm. and just understand that you don't need this massive over accessorization um that uh that's resulted from uh, i i think a big part of it is the 14 club um limit to be honest like people don't need 14 clubs and yet and especially have, beginners yeah, beginners don't them. need 14 clubs mm-hmm. right but they think they do and so it's a, it's actually an obstacle to getting into the game because of the expense of buying a full set, and this perception that beginners think they need uh, they need fourteen really good clubs. They need like the best fourteen clubs money can buy, um, and uh, that that creates pretty big financial obstacle to getting into the game, if you ask me. And then it leads to big bags, and then that leads to carts and. And so forth. GPSs and screens where the shark can give you an instruction tip from one yeah. between one green and the next tea. Ridiculously over accessorized. Exactly, but, all of that sort of stuff. Because yeah. Connor, end, end of rant. Yeah, end of rant. But but kind of not really because Connor, I guess the point of history, is it not, is to allow us to learn so that we can make things better. Now we've certainly made things more modern with golf. Yeah. You could argue that we haven't necessarily made things better in every department, have we? And a lot of what Adrian just talked about is all the stuff that didn't exist 50, 70, 100 years ago in golf when the game, frankly, in many ways, was much healthier. Oh, I agree. I, I think, you, you know, I think, I think we've entered, I like to believe we've entered, uh, a new renaissance of golf, at least when it comes to golf course design. We're mm-hmm. starting to see that, right, of the one cut. Um, you know, there's a lot of architects out there, a lot of the guys you know, obviously, and talk to that are creating golf courses that are introducing angles and thought and uh, width, for instance. I think there is, if you look at, even beyond that, you look at the, the quirk of courses that we're getting now, like the, the cradle, um, 
the uh, I'm trying to think the, the course in Valley Neal, the Mulligan course is it, mm-hmm. I think it's called yeah. short course E par three or short holes. I'm hoping that those transition. I, I've heard there's new word what uh, I believe Tom Doak is building a, a par 68 course. Mm-hmm. Uh, where is that going? That's going up in the Sand Valley region. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping right that in this new renaissance that this renaissance of thought kind of takes us. Uh, you know, who knows if that's going to get us into the clubs and the balls and all that. But I'd like to think that um, form follows function and that, you know, this new design, this new, uh, it's not new, I guess whatever is old is new again. But mm. this new renaissance in golf, I think, brings a lot of potential into bringing back some of that skill and art- artistry to the game that mm. we've lacked for, I think, many years. It, it It's a joy that... And we've probably all been there. You came to the game late in life, uh, Connor. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic yep. that you've come to to this part. Not everybody gets there, do they? Some people get stuck at the point where, which Tom yeah. Coyne talked about in his book, which is spending your life trying to you know to hit that master that perfect six iron. And you think that if you do that, then you know golf will be the most satisfying pursuit on the planet. What you realise really in the end is that in fact that's the least important thing that all of the things that are wonderful about golf have almost nothing to do with whether you can hit your six on 188 yards exactly every single time yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's- I, well i'll give it so think of it this way this is as crazy as you can think of so my, for me golf was born with the pro v1 i mean that's basically when i started mm-hmm. I, I never played a wound ball until i went backwards how weird is that so i actually mm-hmm. started in the future and went backwards to the past. Yeah. Right. Uh, which is an, I, I literally just hit me while we were talking that, you know, my golf game started with a pro V one and ended with a gutty. I've gone back in history a couple times, you know, out of pure insanity. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting journey, which has something to teach us because most people, and in fact, I would suggest Adrian, you're sort of about my vintage. Very few of us, I think, use the wound ball, in the 80s, 90s, because you simply couldn't afford them, could you? The Pilata ball was so expensive that for a club member to, to consider using them, you either had yeah. to be really, really good or really, really wealthy because they'd only last That's about, right. You'd save them up. Yeah, they'd know, last about um, three holes and that'd be it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they'd cut yeah, I can remember getting my hands on second-hand one every now and then, and uh, I'd, I'd think, oh, okay, I'm going to use that in Saturday. Yeah. But I'd only use it on the front nine at Maitland because there was no water. Uh, <laughs> couldn't <laughs> lose it in the, in the point. And, uh, he, yeah. he, here's a fantastic story for you. Way back when, when I worked for the, the Daily Telegraph, I was in the Wollongong Bureau down there for a couple of years. Actually, it was called the Bureau Chief, Adrian. Think about that, the Bureau Chief. There's a name that... Uh, that you don't hear anymore. And there was a, a story that appeared in the local paper there, which we followed up. So there was a young kid, and he was about 14 at the time. So we were talking about, I'm going to say early 90s, 91, 92. He's a keen golfer, and he'd found on the course a uh, wound ballada ball. Um, I think it was a Titleist. It was one of the, the revered brands and everything. But it was ever so slightly out of shape. And his mate had told him that if you heat it in the microwave, you could mould it back into a perfect sphere again, that it would come back into shape and then it would be usable. So he went home and he put it in the microwave and he put it on for however long and he took it out and, of course, it exploded in his face. (laughs) (laughs) He had this huge black eye and I think it had chipped a tooth and it was quite serious. I mean, he was quite lucky not to be really seriously hurt. Anyway, so we went down there and we did a story and we took a photo and we put it in the telly and the telly, of course, is owned by News Limit or News Corp. So it went around, it was distributed around the world to various papers. He got a phone call from a radio station in Kentucky 
who wanted to talk to him about this this poor kid in regional Australia. You know, they'd painted this picture of this poor kid in regional Australia. He was so poor he could barely afford a golf ball and he had to heat them up to try and make them round. And, of course, it landed at our office about three weeks later was a dozen um, premium wound golf balls from somewhere in America. Somebody in America had heard the story, couldn't find his address, had tracked the story back to him emanating from our office and donated a box of golf balls to be given to this Fantastic. poor kid who couldn't afford golf balls. So he'd, he'd stop balls. putting so them into microwaves. So he'd stop putting but them that's, in the microwaves. Isn't that the hey? great thing about being a golfer, though? <laughs> that's I mean, right. Golfers are minus the, the minus 1% of golfers. They are the best people. Yeah. I yeah. mean, there's 1% of them that you never want to be around, but like, 99% of golfers yep. are the greatest people you've ever met. Some golfer yeah. in you Kentucky play golf, has thought to himself. Something to yeah. talk about with yeah. – um, yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Uh, Connor, we haven't even scratched the surface, but I've just had a look at how long we've been going, and we'd best leave the surface intact, I suspect, because uh, there's, there's no time. Uh, it has been fantastic to talk to you, and I don't think this will be the last time, but the Society of Golf Australians. Now, give us the Twitter handle for the Society of Golf Australians for those who want to follow. I'll put it in the show notes as well, but tell, us, tell people yeah. where they can find you on social media. Let's see. It is S. S historians golf, I believe at S historians golf. Check me on that. It's only a month old. I'm probably wrong on it as I speak. You're wrong. It doesn't have the golf in it. I think it's just, it's just S historians. historians. Right. Yeah. You You could go anywhere. You could could branch out. (laughs) You could branch out into non-golf areas with that Twitter handle. Whoever I just gave that to just got like 15 hits though. I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Part. Somebody, that's right. Somebody's just. Uh, just are you on Facebook, Instagram, any of those things? Do you do any of that stuff as yet? I am on Facebook. Uh, it's just, I believe it's just me though, Connor T. Lewis. Connor T. Lewis. If people want to, there uh, is actually there is a page that I opened. Uh, it is Society of Golf Historians as well, but it is up and coming on Facebook, and then we're going to have a website as well, okay. which is forthcoming. Well, fantastic, and I'm sure you'll get some – I hope you get some people from Australia. I'm sure there are there are plenty out there who are interested. It's just a matter of getting them the word, and as we've already discovered, spreading the word is much easier in this day and age, uh, plugged into the social media, so we hope you get some hits from there. But thank you for taking the time today. It's been fantastic to talk on, and I was lucky enough to get the video tour of the office as well, so I feel extra special. Well, let me just tell you, from my perspective, it is just so great to talk to someone other than the voices in my head. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> And on that you only note, have to worry. You only have to worry when they start talking back. When they start talking, about, when they start disagreeing with you, Connor, then you probably yeah, need to do something debating. about that. Yeah, that's right. It's usually debating. Yeah, yeah. indeed. Uh, Adrian, you can Ed- talk to that Bobby Jones bust of yours. That uh, I'm sure it's a very good <laughs> yes. listener because I actually do do that. Tell people yeah. about. Tell the you bust. what. Before we go, let yeah. me tell you a quick funny story. So I, this bronze bust of Bobby Jones, uh, Adrian, you didn't get to see it. It's, it's life size. Yeah. It's the avatar yeah, on the Twitter feed. It, so I, I pe- can see it on your Twitter. Yeah, people yeah. see it on the Twitter. Yeah, Let me tell so you all about your Twitter it. account. Yeah, right. yeah, it used to sit in my actual work office, not my home office. And I had a couple employees come into my office one day, and I'm just sitting in there, and it's it's in the corner. And this lady walks in. She goes, "Can I ask you a question?" And I go, "Yeah, absolutely. What do you need?" And she goes, oh, "I don't want this to be awkward, but..." is that bronze bust of you? And I go, you think I'm the kind of person that would have a bronze bust of themselves in my office? And there was a really long, uncomfortable silence. (laughs) 
<laughs> what do you think I am, Greg Norman? Count that person. I'm yeah. that guy. Yeah, you're you're Greg Norman. There you go. Um, yeah, yeah exactly. Has, has his own. If it was me, the the side of his cheek would be like worn out. Like you see some bronze things, just like because I'd give him a little a little pat. slap on the cheek every time I'd walk past. I think. <laughs> oh, yeah. Had a great idea. Wacko, bang, and give him a or just pinch his nose or something every yeah. time I walk past. We we do have the same size head, and often during the Ryder Cup, he will wear a Ryder Cup hat. Uh, obviously, for the American, <laughs> no, through I, the whole week. I we'll hope. do it for the Walker Cup as well. <laughs> to, to put, no, undignified. To put people in the picture, so so Connor has a bronze bust of Bobby Jones sitting on his desk, which I think has quite the story to tell and is, is probably a fairly significant piece. But it's the picture in your Twitter handle, isn't it? So if people want to see it, they can yes, see that it. Is correct. So yep. during the Ryder Cup, what I fully expect to see is the Twitter profile picture changed to a photo of the You'll Bobby Jones it. bust with the Ryder Cup cap on. You will see it. If the US get beaten... I fully expect to see the following week the Bobby oh, Jones no, bust with a European be. cap on it for a week. No, no, no. No? Bob wouldn't do that. No, Bob wouldn't. wouldn't do that to us. <laughs> no, he wouldn't do that to you. Connor, lovely to chat to you. Thank you, my friend. Adrian, fantastic to talk to you as well. And uh, what a journey I feel like we just went on. It's been great to have you along as well. Thanks, Rod. I'm looking forward to thinking about this stuff in my next game of Colvin yeah. this week. <laughs> there there you go. No hole in Colvin. That's the difference between yeah. the two games. <laughs> Episode 76, Done and Dusted. I uh, hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Make sure you get in touch if you're interested in coming along to that day at Bonnie Doon. I think it will be fantastic if we can get it off the ground. And if we can't, you and I will go out there anyway, Adrian. Uh, yeah, have we'll, a, we'll have a great time. A game of golf and a podcast amongst ourselves, which will be beaut. Uh, look forward to seeing you all again next week on episode 77 here of the I Seek Golf podcast. I owe a special debt to Rod Morey and Adrian Logue. If it weren't for their interview, persistence, and mentorship, I wouldn't have this very show today. Thank you both for believing in golf history and for believing in me. Yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis.